Greetings, Assalamu alaikum, welcome to this episode of the Hikmah Project podcast. Today we'll be speaking to Sheikh Ibrahim Skutema, who is a Sufi teacher in the Darqawi Shadaliya order, and uh, he's also the founder and a leading partner of the Skutema Associates, a, bit, a business transformation consultancy. Um, he runs a Zawiya in South Africa and uh, we'll be talking to him about a number of things including um, his own journey to Islam and Sufism, uh, his relationship with his Sheikh, Sheikh Mustafa Basir of Morocco, uh, as well as uh, Carl Jung uh, and uh, Jung's understanding of the shadow and, and what that means for transformation and Cardos Castanoda, uh, the influence he's had, um, as well as uh, contemporary issues for the seeker of sacred knowledge in the modern era, from Turuk to Bayer uh, and other such things. So before we uh, begin the podcast, please do subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on our website, thehikmaproject.com. And you should also now find a PayPal link and soon to be a Patreon link to be able to support the project uh, in any way that you can. Okay, so without further ado, here is the podcast. Asalaamu Alaikum everyone. Today we are joined by Sheikh Ibrahim who will be talking to us about Sufism and the path and what brought him to the path. Sheikh Ibrahim, welcome to the Hikmah Project podcast. Thank you very much, Sakhav Saab. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to have you. Can we start off by uh, j you just telling us a bit about your own spiritual journey and what it is that brought you to Sufism? It was sort of an incremental move. I think from my adolescence, I was, uh, you know, I was, into, I had, had an, an, a curiosity and an interest in, in the inner or, or inner reality. And, um, you know, I've, um, even as an adolescent, I'd spent many, many months actually uh, in, in sort of advanced meditation programs and, um, um, I'd sort of I'd dabbled in all sorts of things, um, you know, uh, mainly Oriental, but also Occidental, some Christian mysticism and some, um, was a fiddle a bit with Kabbalism. But this, this is all in my late teens and early 20s. And um, uh, it became apparent to me in my early 20s that, uh, um, you know, I had this, this um, sort of, I suppose, arrogant young person's dismissal of formal religion. I was brought up Catholic, so, um, um, and so I, I had a bit of a visceral reaction to the whole Catholic thing. There were a number of things that just um, I found a bit offensive about some of the assumptions of Catholicism. And I thought, well, you know, I, I don't really ever want to commit to any formal religion, but if I, if I, if I would, then Islam would be it, because at least it doesn't ask me to do anything that's offensive to my reason. And um, so uh, I, I became Muslim in 1981, 
um, with some tablighis. And I must admit, um, you know, I, 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 right from the start, I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't sort of doubting my decision, but I found their worldview, dare I say, medieval, and and somewhat offensive. And um, so, very early on, I I kind of gravitated to circles of zikr. The first person that uh, who, who and I'm still uh, friends with him today I'm the person I would regard as my first sheikh is um, a man called Farid Domingo is a Naqshbandi Naqshbandi sheikh but um, representing um, a branch of the Naqshbandia that had actually been indigenous to uh, South Africa for um, a couple of centuries had been around at least 150 years um, through through the Cape, um, so um, so not a, so they were actually in a sense completely unrelated to the more modern, you know, uh, people so from Cyprus and so on. So um, he was my first exposure, and then from there um, I had a sojourn, as many people of my generation did, with the Marabi tune. Um, uh, uh, the Marabi tune. Uh, you know, their the agenda was quite explicitly political. And that was very um, attractive to people of, um, of my generation, South Africans of my generation. I mean, we feel, you know, kind of grew up, cut our teeth on the struggle. So, um, and also Islam in South Africa had a very peculiar kind of patterning that um, the it was really people of South Asian descent who controlled the deen in South Africa. Um, um, it, well, up in the, in, the, in the interior, it was many people of South Asian descent, specifically Gujarati, but then also um, some Tamil influence. And then in the Cape, people of Malay descent. And there was, um, you know, particularly among the people of uh, South Asian sort of background there, there wasn't a place for new Muslims really with them. And they're actually quite racist. And that racism was particularly experienced by black South African Muslims. And so there was a great resistance to uh, just, you know, you know, we wanted the deen, but we didn't want to be second class citizens in the Muslim community. And so this thing, the Murabi Tun thing came like a breath of fresh air, you know, just cut across all of this. So they, basically the message was, you don't need to take on uh, what we would call an Indian identity to be a Muslim, you know, I mean, um, um, you know, so we all became Maliki and we took on this whole Marabi tune thing. Um, but that became increasingly politicized by the end of the uh, 80s and early 90s and, um, and, and also had gone almost criminal. And uh, I got increasingly disenamored with it. So, um, I then, for a short while, I, I never uh, gave bear to him, but I became associated with Sheikh Fadlana Hairi. Um, and uh, through him, I was directed to um, Sheikh Mustafa um, Al-Basir, who was my Sheikh, and from whom I got my ilm. Yeah, so, and that was about 2000 when that happened. So that was kind of the, the rather circuitous journey. Wow. So could you tell us more about Sheikh Mustafa and what the structure uh, of the practice was, the training, the framework 
the intellectual framework, if you like. How, how, what was the terbiya process? Mm, there was none. It was the most extraordinary experience. I, uh, I, I was, um, so I, I, Chef Fadlala indicated to me that I should go and see this man because in Chef Fadlala's word, he was the most important living um, exponent of the Darqawa. And um, uh, so I took my family and um, we, uh, we, we basically made, did a holiday to, you know, there was a young Moroccan man who stayed in our house for the better part of a year. And so his family had a house in Fez. So we, I took my family to Morocco. We stayed in Fez. And then I planned a short visit to Sheikh Mustafa Zawiya, three days in that trip. I think it was about 2000. This happened. And um, uh, when, I, when, when we arrived after a nightmare journey from Fez, because, you know, there were sort of three adults and three, three boys in a tiny car, lost in the mountains. It was an absolute nightmare journey. Sort of... You know, um, we finally got to the gates of the Zawiya. We got um, um, exhausted. They, they said to us, they were about to close the gates for the night. And they said, you know, Chef Mustafa isn't here. Um, he's, uh, we don't know where he, where he is and, and when he's going to come back. And so I was quite disappointed. And so I said, well, look, we'll come back tomorrow. I mean, we're clearly bombing you right at the end of the day. So we'll find a hotel or something. And they were scandalized. I said, no, no, you, you must stay here tonight. So we stayed, and when I got up for subuh the next morning, Shaykh Mustafa was in the, in the Jamaat. And immediately after the Salah, he took me for a walk. Now, I don't speak his Arabic, and I mean, I don't speak Arabic at all, never mind his Arabic. So this, this young man who'd been our, um, our, our guest here, who was then our host, he was sort of our, our guide, he came with us. It was me, myself, this young man, Muhammad and Shaykh Mustafa, we were walking th through the cemetery at the back of the Zawiya. And Shaykh Mustafa said that was explaining, you know, about various graves and who was lying here and who was lying there. And I was trying to, I had a question in my mind that I was formulating. And he, he said something which Muhammad answered. It was a direct question, direct answer to the question I was formulating in my mind. And I, I was kind of, um, taken aback. I said, you know, you know, Shaykh Mustafa, how did you know I was going to ask you that? And then he was taken aback. He said, well, don't you know, you and I are the same. And he pointed directly at my chest like this. He said, we are the same. I said, what do you mean? He said, we were together from, from the first moment. He said, um, uh, 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 we, uh, we were together when Allah asked us to bear witness. And, uh, you know, Saqib, I had three days with this man. I'd never been so overwhelmed by another human being in my life. It was, it was completely irrational. You know, I've, I've never considered myself to be a particularly sentimental person. But when I left that Zawiya after the, those three days, it, it felt like somebody had physically taken their hands, put it in my chest and pulled my heart out. It was the, the, the most heart-rending anguish I've ever experienced. I we you know, I didn't weep when either of my parents died. Well, I wept like an infant when I left Chef Mustafa's Zawiya. But as I walked out, he, he, he put his burnus over me. He gave me his burnus. 
And I didn't realize the significance of that. And then he came to visit us here about three or four years subsequently uh, in this area. And he said to me, well, you know, I'd given, I'd given you even then. So, so my ex, my, the extent of my initial exposure to this man was three days. It was completely non-rational what happened. I cannot account for it. To this day, I cannot account for it. This is one of the most overwhelming experiences of my life. Wow. So just going back, just to put this into context, here you are, somebody who's tried different sort of paths out and explored various spiritual religious traditions. And just for our listeners, what was it? I mean, you said you came through the Tablighi Jamaat and you, obviously things didn't resonate in terms of the worldview, etc. But when you met these men of God, what zok, what taste or what uh, was it that gave you the certainty in your heart that this is more than just mere belief system or you know, uh, some political ideas or uh, just a blind following. How did you know this was authentic spirituality? And this is what you was looking for. You know, I listened, I listened to um, the, an interview of uh, Carl Jung recently. And it was done two years before he passed away. So he was an old man. And the interviewer asked him, so... Um, it was like a circuit, the guy's trying to obviously trap him, you see. You know, did you grow up religious? Yes, Mr. Dr. Jung said religious. Uh, did you believe in God? Yes, I believed in God. So do you still believe in God? He said. And then Jung got this strange glint in his eye and he said, uh, well, that's a difficult thing to answer because I don't actually, I know. You have a sense of conviction, and it's completely visceral. It's not in the head. You know. And if somebody asks you for evidence, well, rationally, how can you demonstrate this? This is like saying, how can I rationally demonstrate that I've got a, that there's pressure on my backside on the seat right now? It's like a strange question. You know, it's like, it's a difficult question. You just know. You know in your, you know from here, not from here. It's not evidential. So when I, I mean, so the most overwhelming experience I had of this in my life was with uh, Sheikh Mustafa. And it was, um, uh, I, I, do, I had absolute sense that I was, you know, in the presence of an absolutely extraordinary being. I was just completely enchanted by the man. You know, he didn't look like much. I mean, he was about as broad as he was tall. He worked with an extreme limp. He was, um, you know, he was, um, he was a grizzled old man. I mean, he was kind of like suffering the whole time because he had this severely disabled leg. So he was always in pain, you know. But I, I, I just cannot account for the experience. All that I know is not, you know, of why should I be so overwhelmed by a person that I'd only known for three days? Why should I? I wept for a day afterwards. It was the most extraordinary experience. And it wasn't just so we, he came to visit us here at the Zawiya, um, about, you know, sometime maybe three or four years after that event. And when he, um, 
both when you arrived and when you left, there wasn't a dry eye on this property. Where the day he left, people lined, <laughs> they lined the drive. It was a long drive, it's a few hundred meters, you know, on either side of the drive. Everybody weeping, blubbing like a baby. They couldn't understand a word the man said. You know, I mean, he spoke Arabic. So it wasn't, it's not, this is not, this matter that we're after is a matter of taste and first-hand experience. It's not a matter of, of demonstration and argumentation. You know, it's, it's a different kind of knowledge. Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a kind of knowledge that you have a complete conviction about once you've experienced it. You, you know, nobody can deny my experience. It's like that Jung quote, you know, I, I don't believe in God. I know God. You know, it's, it's, it's for him, it has become a first-hand experience. Amazing. Just um, talking about Jung, I just came across a quote by Jung this morning, which resonated. I wonder if it's a Jungian synchronicity. Yeah, but I'm just going to quote it. Uh, he says, one doesn't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Yeah. And one of the things I've experienced or found on the Sufi path at times, on the spiritual path generally, is that sometimes what Jung refers to the shadow is not fully acknowledged. Mm. It, or maybe it's in some teachings it is, in others it might not be fully acknowledged. And the practices are generally just to do thicker or focus on the light. Whereas he obviously here is suggesting to turn to the darkness and make it uh, conscious, you know. So the question really is to see what your insight is into this quote and how it relates to the Tazkiyah of nafs, the the purification of the nafs and character development. I, I I think it's a very useful way to understand one's own uh, spiritual development as a journey of integrating parts of yourself that you've banished and alienated, as becoming more holy and fully you. It's it's taking the light of your attention and shining it deeper and deeper in to where your being comes from. So but bits of you that were disavowed become um, acknowledged and integrated. Um, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I get very irritated. People who, who assume that this journey is purely about becoming moral and twee and correct, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it really isn't that. If you don't come to acknowledge the degree to which you are capable of absolutely mon absolute monstrosity, I mean, absolutely shocking brutality, then you cannot be trusted. You know, uh, you, you can only trust a person who understands the full keyboard of their being and knows that the, this, this base note of complete blood-curdling brutality is part of their nature. And that thing will never overwhelm them when they're in the wrong place in the wrong time.
you know, the rest of us, we just play a very narrow part of this keyboard. And um, all of these, these monsters are sitting just out of view. And we don't have the objectivity, we don't have the depth of, uh, of, of kind of gatheredness and of perceiving to not be overwhelmed by these things when they come out of the closet. You know, so you put very nice people in the right condition and they become absolute monsters. You know? And they'll always justify it to themselves. And they'll justify it to themselves in the name of being moral. So, I mean, you may have heard me, I mentioned this a number of times in various um, uh, discussions and um, the rules. There's, um, I was on, on Hajj, uh, and I, I was in the Haram, and there was a group of Turkish uh, Hujjaj, who obviously they're in a tour group. And the, 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 the young men were on the outside, holding hands, protecting the women and the old people on the inside. So it was this like, almost like a military kind of formation moving through. And I saw a young Turkish man knocking this doddering little Indonesian buddy out of the way, you know? I mean, obviously in protection of his lot, you know? And it struck me, you know, you know that man would never do that in cold reason. You know, yeah, he's like stuck between us, rock and a hard place. He's got to protect his own. And, and so, so he's now stuck in a spot. And here, the monster that's there that he would never acknowledge in himself came out. Yeah. So um, I think uh, we, we cannot be trusted uh, until we, uh, we are fully acquainted with the extent of our own brutality. So, so how are those areas, those monsters, as you put it, integrated and then transformed? Is that more psychological, as Jung would have it, or does it fall under the spiritual, or is the spiritual wide enough to incorporate the psychological? Well, uh, yeah, maybe soccer, maybe these, these, these differentiations aren't particularly useful. You know, is it spiritual? Is it psychological? Maybe, I don't know. Um, it's, it's all inner work. I'll give you an experience that I had. Um, so, so as a child, I was always bedeviled by this, this idea that, um, that I wasn't recognized for my... I mean, it's very embarrassing to admit. I mean, even at 60 years old, I'm embarrassed to admit it. Um, I wasn't recognized for my genius. As a child, I had this conviction. You know, they, so and and it caused used to cause me great pain that people used to think I was just an idiot, and you know, and uh, you know. So one day, this is like decades ago now. It was quite a while ago. I was sitting in. I li- used to live on the other side of this property on, in a flat. I was sitting in my flat and um, uh, at a bench next to the door, and I, I felt it. I, I felt. I, this was in a dream. The dream I'm sitting on the bench. The bench was there. There's really, you know. And a, a child who was me, probably about eight years old, came walking into the room, like really crying, like snot and tears, like, you know, like, 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 you know, heartbroken. And I said, What's the matter? He said, They, they, they don't recognize me for my genius. And 
I looked this kid in the eye, knowing this kid is me. I looked this kid in the eye and I said, uh, you know what, it's true. They don't. And it is like his demeanor changed. He wiped his face. He beamed at me, disappeared. I could feel him walk out of my chest and gone. So for me, there was, um, that was one of the more, more dramatic experiences of my life of experiencing something that was denied being integrated. Mm. You know, it happened to come sort of in a sort of a visionary dream, but I think that is how it works. Um, you can't, because you can't deal with the pain you see of, of that thing, whatever that thing is. So you're not looking at it, you're not looking at it. The moment you round on it, you just acknowledge it. It goes, it no longer because it's no longer the monster. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I completely see that. And I think it's just that depending on the path and the spiritual sort of teaching approach, mm. sometimes uh, seekers or the Marid seekers of knowledge can look to the Sheikh for psychological. Uh, um, uh, solutions whether it's mm. uh self-esteem confidence you know dare i say depression and and i guess you're right from one perspective al-ghazali might say well there's certain ills in the soul that can only be cured by depression sorry mm. uh, th 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 yeah by depression so essentially from his perspective in the in the blessings of the tribulation th there's a lesson to be mm. learned yeah absolutely so could you tell us more about the Shadili path, its principles and uh, its fundamental sort of approach to spiritual journeying and development? So again, I'm not a scholar. And so um, I can only give you what I've gleaned from my exposure to this for, over the years. And also bear in mind that you're dealing with something that's been going since the, the 10th century of the Christian era. So this is a, an ocean, beyond an ocean. From, but from what I understood, the, the main elements of this tradition is that it's, it started off as a way of protecting people uh, who were busy with inner endeavor from getting into trouble with the intelligentsia and with the establishment. Because before, you know, I mean, there weren't really things like tarikas for 400 years after the death of the Rasulullah. These things are comparatively modern. Well, they, they, they were subsequent developments. And they, they became developments in the first instance so that uh, uh, people who were, were doing inner work, um, there was some sense of them <clears throat> um, uh, being integrated in the society and not being basically seen to be this, this kind of crazy counter-establishment sort of mystics. And so the, as far as I understand, the, the uh, Sheikh Shadli's principal aim was precisely that, basically to to make um, uh, make the uh, the endeavor socially acceptable, 
so that uh, people would not get into trouble and they'd still be able to do their inner work, but they'd be, they'd uh, fit. It was almost like they had a license to operate because they were part of an organization or an organized group of people who deliberately sought favor, carried favor with the establishment. So that's what he did. He was politically very conservative. Um, uh, and his, his, I think one of his most long, most enduring quotes is, you know, um, uh, the person on this path is inwardly, inwardly intoxicated and, and outwardly sober. Um, the whole thing of keeping proper decorum and being outwardly consistent with the requirements of Sharia, so, so that you don't uh, you don't end up creating unnecessary disruption and having your head cut off, you know. By the, so so that's that's kind of the the, the genesis of the Shadaliya. The Shadaliya have been immensely influential in Africa. They they took the dean down both the east coast and the west coast coast. And and but it, it had this has always had this undertone of um, compliance, if you like. And um, uh, I think what Sheikh Abdelkawi did, and again I speak under correction, I'm not a scholar on the matter. But what I understand Sheikh Abdelkawi to Sheikh Abdelkawi to have done is brought in a, an element of almost social activism again, because he was particularly active among the the poor. Um, but that's probably about as much as I know. So what, what about in terms of teaching texts? Uh, for example, in the Mevlavi Tariqa, they have the Masnavi. Do, is there a central text you would use for teaching spiritual principles, the Hikam of Ibn Atala? Or? No, I don't use text. I mean, I'm not hostile to people using text. And um, if people want that, um, yeah, uh, then, then I would encourage them to go, to go somewhere else. Uh, my curiosity is the first-hand experience, not, not the narration. And so we do a lot of practice here. You know, we uh, do a lot of dhikr, we do a lot of... Uh, but um, if, if, somebody, if somebody sort of comes with, with, with a hikam with a of uh, Ibn Atayla or something like that, and they, they're looking for an erudite discourse, I would say to them, my friend, you've come to the wrong man. Um, please go to somebody who can. This is not my my skill or my my curiosity even. So what would a seeker of truth, if he came to your Zavia, he or hmm. she came to your Zavia, what would they um, find? What, what would you offer them? Well, I can show you. Uh, so that's physically the place that they find. Right. And, uh, and um, so they would be offered a place to stay. There would be con congregational practice that happens on a daily basis that they can join. They would have access to me. Uh, uh, where they could um, discuss anything that is at issue with them. And depending on how I gauge their progress, I might step up the level of their, um, of their, their practice to, you know, we also have halfway down the hill here, we've got a chalwa. If, uh, if I think the person's ready for it and the person's up, to, up for it, 
then we would put them in Chalwa. So, so, but everything that I'm always curious about the first hand experience. So, what happens at Subah when, when we get quiet in the morning, um, you know, our morning practice, you know, the, including the Salah and the, the, the Wirt and the, you know, uh, uh, how quiet do you get? What are you experiencing? What are your insights? What are your dreams? What do you, um, yeah, so that's the sort of thing we do here. And I, I use principally, not text, I use principally my own experience of having worked with um, uh, inner experience for m my adult life in an attempt to be useful to people. And, and it's not everybody's flavor. Um, I completely accept that. Um, you know, m uh, very often people, uh, uh, they want a, an intellectual uh, purity. So, so that, that, that relates to one of the questions you asked, Salkin, about uh, Bea. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not for me to judge what anybody else does. But my own approach to this thing is my front door and my back door is absolutely open. This is a very intense, this is living here and doing this work with people is very intense. And I only have brain space for a limited number of people at any given point in time. So I encourage people, I say to them, you know, when I'm useful to you, stay. When you, I'm no longer useful to you, leave, because there's only so many chairs. I mean, you know, I can't give everybody attention. So don't occupy a space out of... Uh, some misplaced sense of loyalty. Uh, uh, my front door, my back door, completely open. Um, come as you need to and go as you need to. And that's always, that, that has been my approach. Um, I, I, I don't think that, uh, because it's not been the case in my experience, my, my path. You know, the people who gave me the most intellectually actually enabled the least inwardly. The people who gave me the least intellectually enabled the most inwardly. It was literally like that. That's amazing. Sheikh Ibrahim, could you say something about uh, Sufism for our time? I mean, this issue about Bayer in some orders is essential. Uh, in others, there's a sort of probationary period, if you like, and before you then journey on, Bayer is compulsory. Uh, in some orders, it's absolutely... Uh, once you've taken a bayer, uh, there is no going to any other orders, and you're basically taken a pledge for uh, this life and the next. Uh, I mean, there's variations of that, and and while certain structures would have been absolutely essential in in, in the past, with the modern era and the challenges it brings from exponential change and growth to technology zapping our attention. Um, what are the needs of the time and, and how do you see that inner work taking place with so many outward distractions? So I, I have two, two lives. I have a life as a, um, I have apparently rather two lives, a life as, a, as an organizational transformation consultant and a life as a, as a chef, basically. There's, there's actually no difference between the two. It's exactly the same endeavor in both. In both cases, the endeavor is to create the conditions where people can 
incrementally are comfortable with constructing their day-to-day -day engagement with life and with the other on the basis of, of giving or contributing unconditionally. Because when they do that, their whole life comes right. Everything comes right. Um, you know, they don't have to worry about what they get from life. It looks after itself. So that for me is like the core principle that all this stuff is rooted in. Now, you, I think to do that successfully, you really have to take the, you, you need to take the turban and the sherbet off the message because this is nothing other than what the Rasul Salaam said for his time. He tried to help people decode what it meant to be appropriate in that time. But people are lost in a morass of, 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 of cultural accretion, which makes it impossible for them to work out you know, the essential from the inessential. So, so my, my view of this is um, uh, that, that Bayer is not essential. And depending on what time, what side of the bed I got right out of in the morning, I might go as far as to say it's, 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 it's error. It's not guidance. You know, um, because you, you, it is not how this thing started. You know, for those 400 years before the Tarikas became kind of cast in like, you know, People used to travel, they used to move. You'd sit with somebody and you'd get from him and then, oh, thank you very much, it was very insightful. You go to the next guy, that's how it used to work. Where's this thing suddenly come that somebody else has my ticket to the divine encounter? Surely that shirk. You know, I mean, the divine encounter is proximate. He said, I'm closer to you than your jugular vein. So how can some other person claim to give me the key to me? This just fundamentally, I don't think it's useful. I think I, I, I just, um, I mean, I'm going to stop there because I'm probably going to get myself into very hot water. I try not to be too contentious about these things, but um, so, so, so they might all be right and I might be wrong and I'm, that's then, but you know, you have to live by your own conscience. And um, so as far as I'm concerned, I'm, you know, don't stay an, an hour later here than what you need to. And if I've outplayed my usefulness to you, for heaven's sake, move. So Sheikh Ibrahim, in your role as a consultant and a Sheikh with addressing transformation, does, what role does technology have? Does technology have a role in that? I guess we're using technology right now in, in one sense to create this podcast. So, so, um, so if you see the journey that Allah has put us on, it's a journey of occupying higher and higher, higher platforms of increasing complexity, um, uh, which are increasingly tenuous because it's very difficult, you know, the higher the platform becomes, the less stable it is. So that we have a deeper and deeper, greater and greater vantage point into how things are. And when we have a greater vantage point into how things are, we can be increasingly in awe with him and amazed with him. So I think that this current revolution that we're in now creates a possibility of a level of complexity. Like questions that you asked me before, like about Ibn Atayla. Well, actually, you know, if I really wanted to know, he's, you know, he's, a, he's a Google search away. 
So all of that stuff's now irrelevant. You know, what used to stick in your head is irrelevant. So we, 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 we're now operating as a, we can collaborate as a species now in ways that we could never collaborate before. So I think that we're, we're in for, you know, one of the most uh, uh, extraordinary and enlightening rides that we've had as a species. I don't think the story is done. Um, I think we're at, there's so many things that indicate we're at, at a cusp of the integration between the insights of what was called science and the insights of what was called religion. I mean, in the past, you know, the, sort of some of the the stuff that's being done at the sort of right at the vanguard of in, investigations into the effects of of consciousness on um, on 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 phenomena. You know, there's the we're, we're, we're going to go into a new world and that new world is going to present us with even more extraordinary possibilities for witnessing and all, which is why Allah made us. So I think that technology is making possible um, a revival, a growth, a new thing um, that we wouldn't have had before. Sheikh Ibrahim, what does it mean to be human, fully human? So I'm going to say some things which, the only reason why he's made us is so that we can be in awe. The, the reason why the human, because he said he, he made us because he wished to be known. And who is he? Well, he's everything that's superlative. He's everything, he's the greatest. He's the, and what is the effect of the greatest on that which is small? Well, either terror or awe. And, um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, you have to have the possibility of terror, otherwise you couldn't have all. You know, so, so I, the, the reason why we've been made is to be worshipful. Worshipful isn't just making lots of noises and professions in a strange language. It is being in a state of amazement, astonishment at the, the extraordinary... Um, improbability of it all. This is the, this is the what the new world is making increasingly possible. We're beginning to understand just you know from the Big Bang, from the, our, our place on this tiny blue marble in this infinite inkiness of of non-existence, that we should be here. This just you know just the scale of things makes the human being such an improbable thing. You know that um, that produces in us, if you've got if you, any honesty about you, the, what, what the astronauts call the overview effect, it's an effect of just, isn't it astonishing? Isn't it amazing? You know, um, a sense of awe. And that's why we've been made. So to be fully human is to be in a state of awe. And there's actually only two ways of being human. The one is to be in a state of awe, and the other is to be in a state of terror. Um, uh, because um, there's, you know, if you stripped away everything else and ask yourself, well, what is it being, what is being alive all about? You know, here I am, this kind of thing that looks sort of caught in a bag of skin, um, looking out around me, and and let me get out of this tiny little room, but uh, put myself on a on a mountain somewhere so I can get a good view. Uh, I mean, there's, you know. The, the natural effect of just seeing things as they are, seeing the vastness of all of that next to my, 
is amazement, is awe. But the problem is that I am facing that which is potentially completely overwhelming. In fact, will overwhelm me at some point. So I'm either in awe or I'm in terror. And the only thing that makes it possible to move from terror to awe is that I do the thinking work, the rational work, the real fikr, the, you know, the reflective work of, of, of decoding what I'm looking at so that that thing isn't just vast, but I actually see that that which I'm apprehending out there is my benefactor and my ally. So it is the experience of gratitude and trust, gratitude for whatever's put you here, this place where you can witness from, and trust that whatever you're looking at is fundamentally um, your ally. Uh, that then makes the possible, that makes all possible. Otherwise, you're in a state of terror. Both of those things, gratitude to and trust of, require recognizing and a superlative intelligence on the other side of what you're looking at. An incomprehensible intelligence. In other words, not random. Uh, to be human means to, in this sense, to believe. To, in other words, to believe means to um, fully claim for yourself the insight that, that his face, that which you're looking at, is your benefactor and your ally, and it's on your side. You know, and, and to, to know that as a first-hand experience. That's what it means to be human. The moment you start to deny that, you've actually sold yourself short in your humanity. You've reduced yourself to the status of an animal. So in this sense, being human also means to be believed. To believe. When you don't believe, you're, you're selling your humanity short. In a sense, you're a waste of a human skin. Hey, Sheikh Ibrahim, for somebody who is... Uh, ha it doesn't have any background, say, for argument's sake, in, in religion uh, and is seeking authentic spirituality. If they were to ask you, what is Islam? What would you say? I would say that the word um, translated from Arabic means to submit. This, this goes back to the distinction we've just indicated. There's two ways of dealing with the problem of being the frightfully small in the face of the overwhelming, you can either be in awe or you can be in terror. When you're in awe, you recognize that that is your benefactor and your ally and you're no longer contending with it. You submit. Whatever Allah brings you, you accept and you submit. Whereas if you, uh, if you, uh, if you view that as dangerous, then you're contending with it, then you resist. So there's two ways of being in the world one of contention and resistance, and the other one is of submission. What Islam gives you is the technology to submit. Uh, you know, I've, if the, the, the Saum, the Salah, the Hajj, that gives you the technology to submit so that you, you exercise a being, a being of, in all. That's what Islam is for me. It's not an identity. I think people ruin this thing by turning it into an identity. You know, um, so I'm very comfortable with multiple identities. I mean, you know, I, I still use my, my birth name like, that my, my parents gave me, which is not in fact even a Christian name. It's a pagan name. 
um, uh, it's like some Germanic sun god or something. Um, the uh, <clears throat> and I use my Islamic name, and they're interchangeable. And there are like coats I wear, jackets for the day, you know. And um, uh, I think it's perfectly appropriate. You know, it's not. Don't turn your your dean into an identity, because if you turn your dean into an identity, it becomes a reason to be contending again. Yeah. It's not. It's not about submitting. It's about contending. Us versus them, and there's all sorts of really undignified um, expressions of this. Like, you know, I mean, did you know that that Muslims worked out quarantine? <laughs> This is ridiculous, you know. I mean, that uh, if it wasn't for the abs, we wouldn't have mathematics. What would to do? You know, I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, you know, why should this be a competition? I mean, aren't we first human? You know, aren't we supposed to be collaborating as a species, not competing? Sheikh Ibrahim, many people on social media and our listeners would know or heard of. Sheikha Shahbana Aliani and her lovely poetry, which seemed to be sort of spiraling out from the unseen through her, uh, very, very creative. And uh, I didn't know her too well, but I always felt it was inspired by her interaction with you. I'm assuming she was one of your students. She could, was, yes. Could, could you say a bit about her and, and her poetry? I mean, she really was an absolutely extraordinary being, like sort of in the class of Sheikh Mustafa, you know, that this is, you no longer, doesn't matter what, you know, park the, park the words in the text, just sitting in the person's pew, you realize there was something there. So I first met her, there's a, um, a DJ in Karachi called um, Khalid Malik, and we were having a dhikr in his flat, now you're talking a good 15 years ago, I'm sure. I can't remember how long ago now. And um, um, she came to this dhikr. And then, then after that, she just, she kept the conversation alive, you know. And um, at one point she uh, came to the Zawiya. She stayed here for a couple of weeks. She um, went into Khawa. And, um, and then she, I recognized this woman's talent and I've, I mean, dare I say, I wanted to kind of um, pinch her for our business because she was, and apart from anything else, she had any, she was, in, she was incredibly intelligent and, and had a very good nose for organizational work. So um, um, she started working with us and then, then unfortunately she got ill and um, just became increasingly insupportable for her to do the work. Uh, she, I, I, I gave her Ibn uh, probably about two years before she passed, I think, two or three years before she passed. Yeah. Uh, but she was immensely, immensely generous with, with, I mean, hundreds of people. She obviously wasn't in the position to do anything kind of in congregation because she was she was really desperately ill. I mean, it's her whole skeleton that crumpled in on itself, you know, so she became this tiny wizened ball of pain. Um, but she always had time for people. You know, people text her and she'd answer and she kind of, and I found that she had a patience that I just thought was angelic, kind of, just, just nothing that I had. 
So I found it, I mean, really one of the most extraordinary, extraordinary beings I've ever had the pleasure to encounter. I have met some extraordinary beings in this journey. And she's one of the select. I mean, um, very, very rare. Um, not too many people like that in the world. And and was poetry always her thing? Was she always a poetess, or is that something that no. sort of came through the path? When, yeah, the start of when she went came on the path. And I mean, sometimes it is like you to just sprout from, like like gush from her, you know. But right from the start, there was an element of the almost because uh, it was so spontaneous. You know, there's an element of the of of the sort of deeply inspired in the stuff. You know, that kind of um, so, so so certainly. I mean, I don't think I would. Have, I I could have stopped her, but um, I did as much as I could to encourage her to continue writing. And what about Sheikh Harun from Karachi? I've had a few exchanges with him which are uh, quite interesting maybe for another time uh, but i know he's very close to you C could you uh, yeah, say a few words he's, about him his daughter's my my daughter-in-law she's married to my son we had a we had a we had a peculiar relationship myself and this man i mean um it was um we fought like brothers you know which was quite strange and we'd be in each other's company for a day and we'd be bickering about, you know, the tea. I mean, it, it was quite bizarre. But I knew, you know, I met him first in Karachi at a vicar, but I was very exhausted at the time, so I didn't register this man. And then, then we went on another trip to Morocco. And this was after Sheikh Mustafa had passed. And um, there was a few of us who had gone, a few, few from people from South Africa. There was somebody who joined us from Scotland. And... And he decided he was going to go on this trip. And um, the moment I saw the man, I, I think I had an experience not dissimilar from the experience of Mustafa had with me. I just knew this guy was not recognized for what he was. And so I, I said to him, why, why, why are they treating you like this? Why are they not recognizing who you are? And... Um, well, he sort of muttered a couple of things, and then I said, "Well, I mean, yeah, so I'm concerned you, you're a sheikh. This is uh, you. People should be taking you seriously. You know, you you're a rare breed. So um, um, it is the end of that trip that I gave him in. But it was always a, a, a not an easy relationship. I mean, because you see uh, somebody's uh, depth and insight that doesn't necessarily mean we're all twee with each other you know? so we had um, we had a very disputatious relationship hmm. so historically he, he was correct me if I'm wrong from the Chishtia order past he, because... he had he, he had crossed so he had been he had, he had touched signs with the Darqawa, with the Shadaliya. He, he, he also had a short sojourn with um, both Sheikh Fadlala and Sheikh um, Abdul Qadr with the Marabi tune. So he kind of traveled around a bit. Um, but it was really that 
his his relationship with um, man from Karachi, also an Englishman, was not dissimilar from my experience. From what he accounted, was not recounted to me. Was not dissimilar from my experience with uh, Sheikh Mustafa. It was just an instant, absolutely visceral recognition. Yes, I remember a few years back when I had a couple of email exchanges with him. He said something to the effect of having a, a spiritual connection with uh, Hazrat Baba Farid. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, and and was uh, in in some sort of uh, connection. Mm. But I I always felt he had, although we never physically met, he had a lot of deep insight mm. into the oh, thing yeah. that I was asking him. There's no no question about it. The man was was rare. Was, um, no, no he's, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have him here because his daughter is here and she's, um, she's very much her father's child, you know, she's the same, same qualities. Sheikh Ibrahim, could you end with some advice for seekers of truth or some nuggets, some takeaways, some guidance for listeners on of this podcast who are seeking authentic spirituality in, in the current time? I mean, for yourself, just to put this into context, there was no rational thought, as you said, it was from the heart and you just knew it happened. And for some people who are blessed with that encounter, the whole situation is effectively resolved. You you know where you need to be and what you need to do and what the divine reality has planned for you. Whereas others often ask, how do you know which sheikh is your authentic sheikh or which path is an authentic path? And it's very easy for people to either get trapped sometimes in in the worst case scenario through a Bayer type of sort of pledge which they might or might not fully understand especially if they are entering islam through sufism and on the other hand i'm just painting a picture of two extremes here on the other hand you have spiritual window shoppers who would come in and dabble around uh for a bit and then just simply move on uh but in in you know, it's it's very easy for the nafs, as I'm sure you'll know better than me, to come in through the back door, especially when you're on the spiritual path, trying to do this inner work and saying, actually, your work here is done, you need to move on or you need to stay, etc. So what advice would you have for seekers of sacred knowledge and truth in, in the current climate? And oh, sorry, before you answer that, Sheikh Ibrahim, maybe one more thing to add is in this spectrum that I'm drawing out, you're, you're, you also have people who, are, who tend to be of the Islamic faith in that they've been brought up in the Islamic household and whether they have cultural ideas of Islam or it's turned into an identity for them. The, the perspective of uh, a strong emphasis on legalism, you know, as as though the whole of Islam is encoded within some laws that you know, and that's the purpose of existence. And yet, if you strip that down, 
even behind that there's a sincerity that just wants that's yearning for something authentic you know but the narrative the only narrative sometimes they have is that it's through a strict or a more sincere adherence to a set of laws even within a cultural uh conditioned mindset if if you like so so you have a variety of things going on here um so what would your advice be to to uh seekers of sacred knowledge and truth if i understand correctly you're saying um you know how should one view um uh so reverse order to your questions how should one view um uh, people who are um sort of committed to um a culturally encoded understanding of their deen and and it's all about rule compliance and if you like um you know the account in akhira you know sort of like the the sawab picking you know that yeah one way of looking at it and and then uh, and on the other hand what's what would be my advice to the peop to uh, people who are trying to uh, pursue their own inner development um so in terms of the first the the, the first category of people i i would suggest not 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 to have any dispute with them and not to put yourself into a situation you end up in a disputatious engagement to them uh just uh it's um i don't know whether we actually have the same deen i don't know i don't know whether when i put my head on the masala and that person puts their head that the same thing is happening behind their eyes i could never know now for all i know that's what's happening with them is actually superior than what's happening to me but all that i can say is that that way of looking at life the sort of sawab counting and the um, the sort of excessive legalism just doesn't float my boat so 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 i'm probably probably looking at a sort of a subset of people who are kind of odd fish like myself who uh, um, you know find that that sort of very legalistic way of approaching things a little bit unnerving um so for somebody like myself um i would say to them there is a rob he has a greater interest in you arriving home than you have because he created you to be the wanderer and he be created you to be the the one who comes home and he will by his own promise take 10 steps to you with every step that you take to him and all that you have to do in any context that you're in is ask yourself what does he really want from me now what is the contribution he wants me to make here and when you do that with absolute sincerity and as unconditionally as you can in other words it's given to give away he will deliver you to a higher place of witnessing where an even greater contribution will become apparent for you to make so it oscillates between witnessing and acting witnessing and acting witnessing and acting and actually it's not a sheikh that does that for you it's not a, it's he does it for you 
He's put you in exile. He wants you to come home. And he's the more eloquent, he's far more eloquent at giving directions than any human sheikh could ever conceivably be. So, so in fact, the best sheikhs are actually normally people who are actually spiritually somewhat clumsy. It's like the best coach is never but the best athlete. You know, the role of the sheikh is not to be this pristine being kind of emanating light at the top of the mountain. You know, that's not useful. The role of the sheikh is to be somewhere halfway up the mountain to say, hey, the top is over there. That's the direction. You know, that's a good guide. A good guide isn't somebody who's this, um, this, uh, this angelic being that kind of, you know, eats sherbet and floats three millimeters off the ground. I don't think that's helpful. Yeah. So uh, uh, trust that there is a creative genius that sits behind the design of your life. Trust that that creative genius has made you to see him and his works from a vantage point that only you can, a unique vantage point. And he is busy leading you there. And he will meet you, bring you in the company of people that will be helpful to you the next part, part up this steep ascent to your witnessing place. And he will take you away from people, you know. And if you're halfway up here and you suddenly decide, no, I'm going to, I'm committing to this thing, I think that's a mistake because maybe it's not as far as this thing can go. And who knows how far it can go, you know? So uh, trust that there's a manager in charge of the affair and he's by his own admission, he's the planner and his plans are gobsmacking. Just extraordinary. On that note, Sheikh Ibrahim, the last time we met at SOAS in London, you gave a talk and you said you had, I think, become financially uh, bankrupt or you were just in a difficult situation, but it was the best thing that had ever happened to you. Yeah. Could you say, how is that going? Could, could you say a bit more? Well, I mean, this, you know, so um, the, the industry that we were in required us to be traveling around the world and being in training rooms and being in boardrooms. And, and this virus kept us caged for six months. And it's been the most extraordinary experience of my life. I mean, I've, been, I've just, I've, I now know what it feels like not to be an exhausted adult. It's the most extraordinary experience. So, um, uh, so consistently in my life, you know, it's when you, you, when, when you are, when you kind of bereft, you've played your hand, you know, no more cards left, you know, you've kind of, you've now, that's when he demonstrates to you that he, in fact, has this, you know, he will pluck victory from the jaws of catastrophic failure time and again. He leaves it to you to get yourself to the point of catastrophic failure so he can sort of you know, toss in the opening. I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has got the most amazing sense of humor and that he's in, has a superlative tease. Amazing. You think you're completely cornered, there's no way out. It turns out to be the biggest blessing of your life. 
that's consistently been in fact that's not gone away you know you expect that this thing gets less so as you get older or as you get sort of as you develop yourself this is you know i i now i now trade catastrophes in a sense by the hour almost sometimes it feels like you know it's a kind of like yeah alhamdulillah so i can bear witness that there's a genius that has taken charge of my life which is infinitely bigger than my own capacity and that my own capacity consistently comes up short with the complexity that my life produces and that he's always always come through he's always opened he's always shown the next step so i feel a little bit like jung if somebody asked me do you believe in allah i would say well that's a very strange question i wouldn't know how to answer that question because I don't believe in Allah. I know Allah. And he's real. He's absolutely almost tactile for me. It's like real. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Sheikh Ibrahim, final question. Could you say something about Carlos Castaneda? Castaneda. So Carlos, so in my, I told you I had this sort of wandering youth um, and as an adolescence, I came across the writings of Carlos Castaneda and I mean, I kind of came from a, quite a working class background and um, uh, none of, you know, you know, not a lot of kind of culture, I suppose, in my background. But the, this man, his insights were just so extraordinary. And I think the thing that really really the essence of Castaneda, ask me, what's the essence of Castaneda? Is an absolutely radical rejection of victimhood of any kind. Fundamental, radical rejection of victimhood of any kind. And you know, I mean, as an adolescent, you're such a victim. The, I mean, you just are. I mean, the whole world's out to get you, don't you know? you know? So when I read this man and I saw, but there's a way of looking at life where you, 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 are, you accept such a level of accountability that you could die at any moment. Yeah, that just blew me away. So, I mean, there's, uh, with subsequent reading of Castaneda, there's an, there, I mean, there's a number of really clever, um, uh, what can you call them? Um, uh, devices and tools and insights that you can gain from Castaneda. But the critical, if I say what, what is the essence of it, is this radical rejection of victimhood. Sheikh Ibrahim, I'd like to thank you for your time and for blessing us with this opportunity to be able to listen to you. And really, it's been a pleasure and I am short of words for learning about your journey and the insights that you've provided us and I'm sure many listeners feel the same thank you it's very nice talking to you again likewise inshallah maybe another podcast in the future i mean you'll be very welcome thank you all the best assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam